Welcome to Practice Care with Carl White, the podcast where we help practice owners in healthcare know just enough about the business side to make good business decisions and keep their practices independent. Now our host, Carl. Is private equity knocking at your door, but you do not want to let them in? Well, how can you not let them in if they're floating an attractive offer? Dr. Chad Fleming with Wichita Optometry and PIP GPO has faced down private equity and he shares how he's done it. I'm Carl White, Principal at Mark Advisory Group, which is a healthcare marketing agency, and I'm also the host of Practice Care. The mission for both is the same, and that's to help private practice owners stay private. Not only is that what they want, but let's face it, when the provider owns the place, they have more freedom to make the clinical decisions they think are best for you, and there's nobody else whispering in their ear what their own agenda is hospital or a health system or other owners in faraway lands. It's just you and your provider, and that's the best that it can be. And my guest today is Dr. Chad Fleming. Dr. Fleming is an optometrist at Wichita Optometry in Wichita, Kansas. He's been practicing optometry since 2002 with a focus on primary eye care, and he has a special interest in helping patients find relief from dry eye. Dr. Fleming also has a lot of experience on the business side of an optometry practice, He's fended off private equity, which is obviously our topic today, and he is the founder of PIPGPO, which helps optometry practices stay up to date on new lenses and frames, among other things, at a much lower cost compared to doing it themselves. Chad Fleming, thank you for coming on Practice Care. Thank you, Carl. I'm uh, happy to be here and looking forward to our conversation. Me as well. I've been looking forward to this. You can't live in our world of healthcare without hearing about private equity. And somebody who beat him back is warms my heart. So I've been I've been looking forward to this one. Before we get to the private equity story, though, just fill out your it's a common question I ask guests. Kind of fill out your background for us. Tell us a bit more about your optometry practice, just so people can get to know you a bit. I have been, uh, like you said, graduated in two thousand two. I came straight to Wichita to practice here because of family. I've been practicing for uh, 20, 20 years, 21 years. We've gone from a single location to five locations throughout the Wichita area. For those who are listening, Wichita is about 600,000 uh, metro. And so it's a, for Kansas, it's a big city. For the rest of the world, it is a, a large town. So, um, with the locations, we have five locations, uh, nine doctors, and so we have a mosaic of different um, personalities, different interests, and uh, our patient base spans from newborn to 100 years old. So our practice is uh, medically oriented, but we do uh, glasses and contact lenses also, so we are... Um, we're a practice that uh, practices to the fullest scope that we can here in the Wichita area. So my business background is self-taught. I like to say a DIY MBA. Yeah. Um, if I wouldn't have been in optometry, I'd probably be on Wall Street or um, some sort of banking. I love uh, business. I'm trained as an optometrist, but I'm an entrepreneur at heart. So I've got my hands in other things in optometry and outside of optometry that just keep things interesting. So today to talk to you about private equity, um, I don't know that I uh, have won that as much as 
held my ground and continue to battle and battle successfully. So I'm looking forward to this conversation because I want to provide hope for those practices and those owners, especially who feel like they're overwhelmed by what's going on. And also I want to provide um, uh, a resolution or a solution to the fear that's cast uh, over the headlines of our space, not only in optometry, but I see it in veterinary medicine in dentistry in chiropractic in the medical field of this fear of just uh, being taken over by the big guy. Yeah. And, you know, and then you could flip that and say, well, what if I'm not, what if I'm the only one left? Can I compete? It's, it just seems like it's, it's a cauldron of fear or it could be no matter which side you look at it. So yeah, let's turn, let's turn our sights there to the, what I call the PE story. <laughs> um, so I wrote down, you've fended them off, but you've correct me, you're fending them off. I, I didn't realize it was more of like a journey or a quest, uh, but let's start with helping the audience understand kind of the, you know, PE and optometry, you mentioned a bunch of them, you know, a bunch of, of therapeutic areas. Optometry is one of them. Do you see PE? I mean, they're like kind of just, you know, flying overhead uh, over all of optometry. Are they kind of, is it a big deal, a new thing? What Help us understand kind of private equity and, and the private optometry practice. Uh, it's definitely not a new thing. It's they have, uh, the wave has gone across the United States and has hit a lot of practices. There's, it's been going on for numerous years as far as private equity buying practices. They are uh, definitely more interested into the multi-location, potentially multidisciplinary practices, um, high revenue practices throughout the US. And so we've seen um, that wave go through the United States. We're seeing now where there is a fair amount of ownership by private equity, and we're watching on the sidelines those who said no numerous times. I mean, I'm, we'll get into it, but I've had three opportunities in which to take our practice and sell it to private equity. One of those opportunities was an offer uh, not only for them to buy our practice, but for them to put me in a VP role that would, from a financial aspect, would be everybody's financial dream. Um, however, I think there's a lot of core values you have to dig down into, and you said it at the introduction of your uh, podcast, that private practice is about the clinician and about the owner being able to make those decisions, boots on the ground, for what is best for the patient. And so private equity is, I would say it's, it's been at its pinnacle, maybe it still is, um, but definitely we're seeing some things where they've owned practices long enough. You're seeing a number of the doctors who were tied to the practices for three or five years based on their contracts um, exiting and looking for other things. I've had acquaintances and those people in the, in the field who have gone through their years of, hey, they sold to private equity and then they had to give three to five years and now they've exited out to right. take their uh, money and then to move on to something different. So yeah, I'm curious, do you, see them, do you see them coming back into private practice? Do you see any of them um, I that? see them coming, uh, I don't see them coming back into private practice as much as I see them coming back into the workspace. Okay. And so it may not be private practice. Well, 
it may not be clinical. It may be in a managerial role, an oversight role. It may be in industry, coming back and working as a advisor in industry, um, various things like that. But I think a lot of us, our, our, our vocation gives us purpose. And so, you know, depending on where you're at in life, you're not ready to exit. You're not ready to exit the workspace because that gives you an identity. It gives you a game to play. And part of the fun is playing the game. <laughs> it's, it's a good way to look. It makes the day go by better, I imagine, if you view it that way. So let's, uh, let's get into it. What, what, what does an offer from, what do offers from private equity look like? What do they look like for you? So you've said three times now they've come knocking with, with an offer or with, hey, let's talk. What, what does that look like? Well, I think what's interesting is we're we're starting to see it the offer settle down because it's an overbought space if you look at it from an investor's standpoint, where the valuations are uh, inflated for what the returns are. So you have now you're looking at uh, four times EBITDA which is going to be more of what you're going to see three to four times EBITDA for a standard uh, healthcare business like ours, whereas it was inflated not so long ago of where there were offers of eight times EBITDA, 12 times EBITDA. Wow. Um, I, I, I would say at the, the high spot, it was 10, 12, and even higher times EBITDA. Wow. And so you had some of these people just cashing out because they couldn't say no to the, the dollar amounts that uh, private equity was wanting to spend. Right. And so what we're what we're seeing though is that those multiples have definitely gone down because if you look uh, statistically at the valuations, the valuations just don't support it in an overbought space. No, and and just for our for our listeners, um, tell us what EBITDA means. I know it, but but tell us what what it means so they can understand it. Uh, Earning, it's basically earnings. It's earnings before interest, taxes, and amortization. And so you're basically looking at what is the, after you've paid everything, so for an optometrist, after everything, you've, you've paid off everything, yeah. what are your remaining profits minus uh, or before you take out on the interest, the taxes, and the amortization? So I, I don't think this podcast is diving into the depth of that, but that's just kind of a general overview of what that looks like. So yeah. if you pay everything off and your earnings come down to, you know, half a million and they're going to pay you eight times that, you're going to get four million for your practice. Right. And what's interesting about it is that of all the numbers that you could pick on a profit and loss statement, it's one of the smallest, right? It's <laughs> most things are paid off before you have to go pay your taxes and a couple of other things. Um, yeah, you, you can do a multiple of whatever you want, but it tends to be one of the smallest numbers. So 10 to 12 times that, holy cow. Um, I don't even have to know what the number is to know that that's just a large, it's gonna be a large number. Um, and it's interesting that there was it just is. such a feeding frenzy when so much of, so much of, you know, practice in healthcare is, is sort of driven by what you're going to get reimbursed. It's like you're, you're driving a feeding frenzy of higher and higher multiples when you don't have a lot of freedom to raise the prices on the top. Like, Holy cow, it just seems even crazier. Would you say? Yeah, I mean, you get to a breaking point of the number of patients that you can send through in a given hour. Um, yeah. And so there is there is a cap size to that, which does make it 
difficult. Um, but what you find is in the private equities, you have these guys on Wall Street who are running these practices from a distance. And we see that. Uh, we see the decisions that are made. I get the opportunity to interview doctors who are looking to get out of their current situation. And because of the size of our practice and interviewing doctors, uh, you know, under NDA, I'm sitting with doctors who are trying to get out of their situations. Mm -hmm. Interesting, because the decisions are coming from faraway lands, right? Well, yeah, it's a decision that, you know, I'm speculating. It's not fair to the private equity. So I want to be clear on that. Sure. I'm not in the internals. There's some private equities. I won't mention names, but there's definitely better private equities than others. Mm -hmm. There are some that I think are doing a really, uh, really good effort trying to keep that patient experience and what's best for the patient at the forefront. Mm-hmm. And there's others that just appear talking to the people inside is just the decisions are made based on uh, P and L sheet, basically. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, what's the, what's the most Right. Right. Uh, barring any clinical decision. Sure. So you've so far gotten three offers. Was it tough to turn them down? Was it easy to turn them down? You know, why did you, we sort of talked a bit about why you turned them down, but. It'd be, I think it's it's interesting to, to to hear, you know, you say no upon arrival. Do you consider it? Is it hard? Is it easy? What's that look like? I think what's really cool about it, Carl, looking back is it refines you. So uh, fire refines metal, as we know, and pulls out all the impurities. And what it did for me is it it found a place in my heart that said, what are my core values in life? And I had to sit and I had to wrestle with that because I, I would profess that the almighty dollar was, was not, you know, one of my top priorities. But when you're getting faced with this kind of money, you're thinking, well, look at the freedom it could buy, look at this and that. But when I sat down to it, I found that I had a heart for things I didn't realize I had a heart for because I am very entrepreneurial minded. I am very, I enjoy the game. I gave myself, I was a little harder on myself that, you know, staff are dispensable. Doctors are dispensable. Um, I even said I'm dispensable. And as a clinic, as an optometrist, I'm like, I'm dispensable. These patients are still going to keep coming. And what I found is, is that the younger doctors, that if, if I had made this decision with my other pretty it was really going to be a bad thing for the junior partners. It was going to be a really bad thing for the associate doctors because of compensation and the direction that their compensation would head. Mm-hmm. And then for the staff, um, and, and we've seen that play out. So for me, it was, it was that. And then it was just sitting down with my wife of 26 years. And she's like, you value autonomy and you value freedom. And right now you have the autonomy in your life with which optometry to choose the direction it will head and you don't have to answer to anybody. So if, if you have a patient that is um, having a really difficult year and you choose to love them or choose to bless them by comp, you know, giving them a full exam and a yeah. full pair of glasses and not charging them a thing, I literally can make that decision while I'm sitting in the exam room. And yeah. we do give that freedom to our doctors, which is an owner driven 
freedom. And so there's a lot of things happening like that, that, you know, I, I lose those types of freedoms. I lose the freedom to, we've compensated staff that have had a really difficult time, child in the hospital, they had no PTO left, and we gave them months at a time of paid off time off just to meet them where they're at and love them. And you don't get those things when you go corporate. No, you do not. I've lived that life. You do not. Um, are you at Wichita Optometry, are you the sole owner, the sole decision maker when these offers come in or are there partners? Um, I'm the majority partner. And so we have uh, others that were involved. There's three other owners. Okay. And we're at different percentages. So we definitely all, we, we play as we're all equals because that's the best way to play as a team. And so that's a, a big piece of how we've chosen our culture to be and how we manage things. So even if I decided I wanted to sell um, and maybe one of the, the others decided, then, you know, we're still, we've done it to this point. We keep talking until we have a unanimous agreement or we don't do something. Okay. So, so you all, you know, your point of view about freedom, autonomy, uh, you know, doctor ownership, it's all unified. Is that, that sounds like what you're saying. Um, I would say my autonomy and freedom is probably more of my own core value. Got it. Um, other than the others, um, and what their core values. And we definitely have different age uh, or different places in careers of where people are at. And sure. so there, there's a lot of uh, things to come into the decision. Um, I think the decision was there that we had a, enough people at each of the times that we could have moved forward. Um, and it was just through discussions and coming out of what our values were, it just wasn't a good fit. Sure which I imagine through that experience made you all closer, working, you know, yet better together. It's, you know, I imagine that came out of these experiences as well, these offers. Yes, I, I absolutely. And respect from the staff because we, we've told key staff exactly where we were at and why we chose not to. Right. And it's, you, you get some humanity in that and you get some appreciation of, your staff seeing when they see you tell them and you tell them all the time that it's not about the money, the money will take care of itself. And then you make a decision where you vote that the money will take care of itself at the right time, man, that goes a long way as far as the integrity that you communicate to your staff of who you are. Yeah. I just saw a quote from, uh, I'm going to butcher the name and the quote, Bernard Arnault, who's the, the CEO of LMVH, the luxury brand, like the conglomerate, and uh, the quote is, or was, um, designed for customers' desires and profits are a consequence. Like, they're just going to come if you do the right thing. So, kind of made me think of that when you were saying what you said. Um, so, I want to turn to PIP GPO. I want to hear about it, uh, a bit more about it. And I'm curious, was PIP GPO born out of these experiences of, of you know, is it, you know, more out of your entrepreneurship or wow, these private equity guys aren't going to stop. We need to figure out a way to get more cost competitive. Um, tell us about it. And just, I'm curious if they were intertwined one and the other, or just, just happened to be going on at around the same time. 
It was absolutely connected in the sense that uh, my confidence personally was boosted significantly in what I was doing with one of the offers because the offer extended. So by the private equity company, the offer extended beyond my practice. And so they saw a value in what I was doing in our industry as an advisor, as a consultant, uh, coaching, and they valued that such that their offer was not only to buy the practice, but reissue shares back to me that would be the equivalent of what they just paid me. So I wouldn't lose any ground. Plus I would have a lot of cash on the side. Plus they would salary me out at a ridiculous uh, salary to run all, all these offices throughout the U.S. And so I looked at that. And when we made the decision moving forward, it's like, you know what? If they see a vision of that in me, maybe there's something to this that I could create something that was beneficial to my colleagues who are in private practice, could help them come together, those who chose not to sell the private equity, and we could act big but remain small and independent. And so there's buying groups in the industry, as there are in all industries, but I wanted to create something that allowed me to go to the negotiating table and negotiate in a way that was not a buying group. A buying group is a list of equipment, um, products, whatever it might be at a, at a pre-negotiated price. And so that's a set price for all the members that come. I didn't like the way that was set up because I was able to negotiate with five locations better pricing than what these huge buying groups were doing. And I could never figure that out. That never made any sense to me. Yeah, how did they, so, what? <laughs> I mean, size always matters well, it, and that, volume, yeah. No, it's because it, it's money, money, what do they call that? Money on the barrel head or a two, one in the hand is better than two in the bush. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And so yeah. It, it's a hunting saying that basically says that if I can go without a set price and I can negotiate like private equity does for 50 locations, I'm going to get some really good pricing and knowing negotiating skills, I can close those deals on the spot when they've said something that I like, I can say, hey, if you'll give me that right now, I'll sign, you know, we'll buy it. So a long, a long road happened that we turned into creating partners in profit, uh, GPO, and the GPO is a group purchasing organization. So we're able to go to the table and I represent all of the members in negotiating that for them. And we've done it in the frames and we've done it in the ophthalmic lenses. And so as far as I know to date, we are the only group that we can outfit a complete optical at, uh, on a consignment or a frame model base to where our group can come in with some of the biggest names in the industry and put all the frames on the board at no cost to the practice. So what that does is that creates a phenomenal cash flow for that practice because traditionally the practice has always had to buy the inventory, sit on the inventory, return the inventory model, all the inventory is provided, current product, new stuff, 
I've got the companies to manage the inventory. So that's less staff I have to have. And then we have a ophthalmic lens distributor that we were able to go and negotiate with that gives pricing that's much better than what the individual is. So it allowed us to do this in a way that helped our private practices and we don't charge a membership fee. So all the other buying groups, there's some hook in a membership fee or you got to pay to play. And I won't say all of them, that's a gross generalization. There may be some out there that I'm unaware of, but the big ones, you have to pay a percentage of revenues. You have to pay a monthly fee. We have no fees with that because basically I work for the individual members. So long way of getting to it, but that yeah. came out of a confidence private equity gave in, in what we could do as individuals. Right. And I'm curious, do you, um, is there, are there any like commitments? So if I was, you know, ABC optometry practice, um, am, am I making any commitment to purchase X number of frames or ophthalmic lenses or anything like that? Or is just, I sell what I sell and there's a commission or something based on what I sell. It's an invitation only. So you step into the model. There's nothing that you have to, if you don't sell one frame or lens, the only thing that would happen is we come and visit with you and say, hey, this may not be a good fit for you. Mm -hmm. There's nothing, there's no clauses that require any, there's no hooks, there's no kickbacks. If, a, if somebody gets in and wants back out, they just have to return the product and no harm, no foul. And so we, I set that up in a way I was very frustrated within our industry because our past track record is, is all these practices and owners who didn't have a lot of business background were getting told by buying groups that, hey, we want a certain percentage of your revenue and we will come in and we will have pricing that will help get your cost of goods down to certain percentages. And I've kind of been... I've, I've been against that and I've not been a part of that and tried have created something that is best for the practice and the owner and the vendors are the ones that have to pay to play. And what's the vendor feedback been? I mean, they're still in it, so they uh, must the be happy enough, right? But what are they telling you? They love it because Partners in Profit does not get compensated a dime unless something is sold. So what they're accustomed to is buying groups coming to them and saying, hey, pay us $100,000 a year and we will allow you to have access to our members. Because I knew this was going on in the background, I was able to go to them and say, hey, I want nothing. But when something is sold, you know, a small percentage of that needs to go to our administrative uh, fees to help us run our organization. Right. And they loved it because it's a partnership. It's a true partnership that we win together, we lose together. Right. And, you know, I'm going to look at these in a whole new light. There's two optometry practices my family goes to, and both of them have very large, you know, uh, walls of glasses and, you know, drawers and drawers of, of lenses. And I would just stare at them. And I was thinking about them when I was getting ready for this, for this episode, thinking, how on earth do you manage all that? Because forget about all the other variability. Then there's the variability of like, you know, fashion and just staying up with trends. I, 
think I would blow my brains out. I mean, I don't know how the hell they keep up with it. It's a whole, it's got nothing to do with medicine uh, or the practice of medicine. It's all about business and retail, which is like one of the hardest to my brain. And so, yeah, you got to put out money up front for that kind of very like daily, weekly variation. I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. So I like your model because it just seems to offer the, I don't know if it's the flexibility or the, the risk management It's probably the risk management. Most of all, you, you, you pay when you sell, like, that's great. Um, it's the risk management and it allows yeah. us to, so in our industry, our cost of goods is typically, you will see published, published that 25 to 27% is an accepted norm. And our practice runs at about 18 to 19%. And so that's all bottom line dollar, as you yeah. understand. Yeah. And so there's, if you can take a model like that, you can replicate it. I can now put money back into the pockets of the owners for them to discern what they want to do with it. And it allows them to be then more competitive because they have more money in which to utilize, whether it's marketing, whether it's growing the practice, whether it's adding staff. Um, so we've, the, the model's been proven and, and Partners in Profit is growing at a very nice rate. And so we're seeing more and more people who are um, basically applying to be a part of it. And like I said, uh, we've got a VP of professional development and he sits down with them and talks to them and finds out that the owner is paying attention to the business side. And so the qualifications aren't hard. It's just the owner has to be paying attention to the retail side and not just hand it off to somebody and it's completely disorganized. Yeah, I'm wondering, like, you know, for every 10 you sign on, how many are, they kind of get it versus how many need some, I'll say, additional education to uh, to really get the most out of it? Uh, that's a great question. Okay. What it's actually turned into is they're apprehensive. Their way is a great way, this and that. And then as they start to talk to us, they realize that our knowledge and our experience and our success with it is something that they, we earn their trust. And then they, they humbly say, you know what, I'm not running this good. I'm not making any money in it. Can you tell me how to run the model? I want to implement the model exactly as you're doing it. And that's where we found the ones that come back and are like, wow, it does work. Thank you. And so that's been more of the trend than having people. We do have people periodically that come in and they're usually emailing us or hollering at us to say, Hey, I know what you're doing. I've done all the research. I want it. I want, what do I need to do to get in? Right. I know that that's going to work. I yeah. just haven't been able to find that model in the past. There you go. Okay. It's a, yeah. I mean, you know, on the surface, you would say, you know, um, what's to object when I don't have to pay anything until I sell, but I guess there are objections. You know, I, I, I learn not to be surprised anymore by some of the things that I hear, but um, it's interesting that you might get some people who object to it. Maybe it's just lack of understanding. I don't know. I don't know. What is it? We get, we get cynicism because we've been in an industry with uh, promises and promises that have not been delivered on. And so that's the apprehension is I've been told this by XYZ. It never, there was always a bait and switch with it. I'm cynical. That's what we face a lot of. Yeah. And so we just need time and we earn their trust and we tell them, hey, 
if we don't earn your trust, what we're doing differently is you can get out, no harm, no foul. And that way we want to just communicate to you that we're not here for any kind of bait and switch on this. We truly truly value the redeeming qualities of what it is in our industry. Yeah, nice, nice. Well, I'll tell you what, I wish there were a PIP GPO clone in for all sorts of other private practices and all sorts of other areas. Cause I mean, the need to buy supplies, so to speak, is not unique to optometry. Um, it would be great if there were your model in other in other areas, because I mean, some of the clients that I have, you know, on the marketing side. We don't talk about this very much, but you can tell, like you could just tell, I mean, reimbursement doesn't go up, but every other expense does. And eventually, you know, something's got to break or give or bend and geez, um, it'll be a nice thing. But, and and we could go on, listen, I I say this to a lot of of guests, hugely both topics what we're talking about, PIP, GPO, and, you know, dealing with private equity comes a calling. But in the interest of kind of bringing us to the finish line and the the bite-sized advice part of practice care, Two questions I ask every guest to wrap up. The first is, is there, and on the PIP GPO side or on the private equity side, is there anything you think I should have asked you that listeners should know, but just didn't ask you? Oh, that's a um, question I think of on the, I, I would say what's the overarching theme or principle that a, private practice owner needs to look at. And I would say that growth without innovation is going to create chaos and a lot of times failure. Growth with innovation creates the most successful practices in our case. And so I think the hesitancy a lot of times is not in the ideas, Carl, that you deliver to your listeners. It's in the executing of those innovative ideas that's extremely important. So I would say the question would be is, what's the overarching principle? Uh, And that is just to have the courage and the um, risk taking to be innovative in moving forward. Yeah, it's it's funny. I I think of a, a company used to work for one of the CEOs. He had this saying, which was, if you hand me a big, beautiful, grandiose strategy that nobody could ever do because it's so complicated, or you give me a humdrum average strategy that we could get done all day long, I'm going to take that one because we can actually get it done and we'll make it better as we go. But things you can't get done or things you can't do or things you choose not to do, to kind of go back to what you're saying, um, it's risky in trying, it's risky in not. And so listen to what Chad's saying, try something, learn from it, even if it doesn't work, at least learn why it didn't work get a good intuition about it. And then when you try something else in the future, you're that smarter about what you try next. Um, Cool. And the other question that I ask is, so, you know, we've caught the attention of a listener. Uh, Let's start with on the private equity side, and maybe they're fielding requests or they're hearing their, you know, of their colleagues, their competitors in the area, and just their their heart and their gut are saying, no, I don't want to do this. Um, You know, and on the PIP GPO side, because we had two topics, what are one or two tangible steps somebody could take to kind of get going going down that path? So on the private equity side, you know, trying to, I guess, ignore the drumbeat, I'll put it that way. And then on a PIP GPO side, where could they get, you know, what should they do next to kind of get started? 
I would say on the private equity side, it's always a strength in numbers. And I think that you have to be careful as with anything else in media, in communication, make sure that you're getting fed from both sides. Um, because I think if you look for your network of those who have sold the private equity, um, make sure you're visiting with them and they've gone through the process and they're past the honeymoon phase of seeing the dollars and then also talking to those businesses that have been successful. So I would say, make sure you get out there, you network with people, feel free to email me at chad at pipgpo.com. Um, I field questions all the time of my colleagues. I feel like it's a calling to coach. Um, I don't, there's no, there's no hook in that as far as uh, any, any costs. I like to just extend out, you know, here's what my experiences have been. Here's what I've done well. Here's what I've failed at. So I love that. I love the camaraderie of the network. Um, so that's in the private equity side. Make sure you do your research on both sides and you don't li just listen to the headlines. On the PIP GPO side, oh my goodness, if you find this and you're interested and you're one that's, uh, you know, an owner and you're looking to push down your cost of goods, um, I would welcome a discussion with you or I can connect you to Dr. Heisterman, who is our uh, VP of Professional Relationships, and we can have a 15, 20-minute call and just find out if it's something that you're interested in. If it is great, good job, uh, figure it out and we can move forward. If not, you know, at least you found out about it and found out what options are going on in the industry. So uh, that's the same email. Feel free to contact me if this uh, podcast was intriguing and you wanted to speak more, um, you can contact me at chad at pipgpo.com. Thanks, Carl. Perfect. Yes, thank you indeed. And uh, we'll get your contact info, that contact info in the show notes. Once again, this is Dr. Chad Fleming with both Wichita Optometry and PIP GPO. Um, a couple of points just before we wrap up the episode. First, if you're someone like Chad, who's got an experience, uh, experience with the business side of private practice that you think others would benefit from your peers, or if you're someone like me who tries to serve private practices and you've got some expertise to share in either case, I want you to come on Practice Care and tell the world about it. In the show notes to Chad's episode, at every episode, there's a link, a couple of questions. Tell us what you're thinking about so that we can get you scheduled as soon as possible. And finally, if you haven't done so yet, please subscribe to Practice Care on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, not Shopify, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, all of them. We're on every major platform. Easy to find us, easy to sign up and subscribe so that you can get these, this episode and all the other episodes. Thanks again. And until next time. Thank you for listening to Practice Care with Carl White. Make sure to subscribe and follow so you don't miss another episode. You can find our guest contact information in the show notes. Stay tuned for the next episode. <laughs>